Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.therapistsinstlouis.com, and you can find this podcast at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. Today, we are talking with Dr. Becky Lynn, who is a gynecologist and women's health specialist. She specializes in sexual function and is trained as a trained sexual counselor. She's known for her research looking at the effects of cannabis on the sexual experience in women, which I'm very interested in finding out more about, by the way. Okay. She's also a local expert in persistent genital arousal disorder and has helped many women bring happiness to their bedroom. Um, that, so, Dr. Becky, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually, it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Well, so I'm just going to jump right in. Tell me all about cannabis and sex. Sure. Um, So, you know, my research in that sort of fell into my lap. Um, You know, I didn't set out when I went to medical school to be the sex doctor and the cannabis doctor, but um, (laughs) I noticed that in my practice, um, a lot of women who would come to me with sexual problems would sort of mention on the side that, you know, using marijuana seemed to help them. And so that made me curious to see what is the data show? Is there research into this? And as you can imagine, there really wasn't a lot of you know, research in, you know, medical journals and the medical literature mm-hmm. on using cannabis and sex because it's been illegal. Yeah. Um, but on the internet everywhere, it tells you that cannabis is the best aphrodisiac ever and, you know, all sorts of things you can find on the internet. So that um, led me to do a study, which was a questionnaire. I mean, we obviously cannot give 
women marijuana for fun, say, go have sex and tell me what happens. Um, <laughs> you have so, to have people who are already doing it and are willing to tell you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's how we got around that limitation. Uh-huh. Um, and so we did a questionnaire um, of uh, anybody who walked into our gynecology practice. This was when I was at St. Louis University. And we asked them, you know, what, what, what happens when you use marijuana before sex? You know, what, how did it affect the sexual experience, orgasm, lubrication, desire, and pain? And we found that the majority of women reported an improvement in the overall sexual satisfaction, desire, orgasm, and a decrease in pain. And it was about 50-50 with lubrication. Um, even though marijuana is technically a vasodilator, you would think it would increase. But there's a lot of issues, you know, with a questionnaire study. Um, since my clients or my uh, listeners don't always know what um, vasodilating is, could you oh, explain yeah, that real yeah. quick? Yeah, absolutely. It just means that the blood vessels dilate. And so that's what helps a woman lubricate. When you become aroused, you get more blood flow into the vagina, the blood vessels dilate. And actually lubrication is sort of kind of the, the transfer of um, fluid from inside the blood vessels to the vaginal mucosa. So you want vasodilation and it also helps with engorgement because those those blood vessels dilate, they get bigger and you feel engorged and aroused. Okay. So it's a good thing. You want it to be engorged and aroused. Thing. Yes. Yes. Um, the other thing that we found in the study is that people who used marijuana more frequently um, had, were more likely to report better orgasms in general um, than women than women who used less frequently. Um, and uh, and people who did use marijuana before sex were more likely to have better orgasms in general than people who did not. So it was it was actually interesting. And when you look at the literature, and there have been a couple of other questionnaires that I've seen. Um, published. Um, it's, it goes along with what other questionnaires and other studies have shown. Um, you know, the only thing is this is all in moderation because if you smoke too much or use too much, however you use it and you can't move, that's not going to help you. Yeah. So, <laughs> you need you know, to use your body to have good yes, sex. <laughs> exactly. So they, we're talking moderation here. So yeah. Well, yeah. Cause if you use so much of it, you might just veg out on the couch and eat too much. I mean, there's that exactly. other option that can occur. <laughs> yeah. So if you are planning on doing this, you have to, you have to kind of know yourself, you know, and know, you know, sort of test the waters before you go all out, I guess. I think that's what's hard about, like, so I, I know, you know, it's obvious because it's scheduled at a very, I think it's schedule one, um, like a narcotic. It's very highly uh -huh. scheduled in terms of its illegal qualities. Um, and as a part of that, it, it is very much difficult for us to research it in any sort of quantitative mm -hmm. way. Um, so yeah, what we get are like stories and and um, case studies and people doing kind of these like research like you're describing where it's kind of, all right, well, if you're already doing it, I'll just see what you're doing. But then it's hard to find out like what is the best amount for people to take? When is right. it more, too much or too little? Because there's also not enough to, uh, enough testing done to be able to decide what would be the best controlled dose, for example, because you just kind of right. smoke some and hope for the best. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. So the, the studies are definitely lacking. And I hope that in the future, you know, over the mm -hmm. next 10, 15 years, that the body of research will grow. Me too. You know, I, I, maybe the United States isn't there yet, but Canada, it's legal recreational and for medical use, you know, all over Canada. Mm -hmm. 
So that opens a lot of doors for some better quality research. Are you seeing positive things then in some of the research coming from Canada? Actually, I haven't seen much coming from Canada. Um, The last two studies that I saw looking at um, sexuality and cannabis, I saw one from Stanford was also a questionnaire. And then there was another questionnaire, and I can't remember what institution, but it was in the United States. Okay. Well, so you don't just, I mean, like this is something you study, but I mean, in general, you also help women with um, libido issues, painful sex, PGAD. I'm wondering which of those you want to talk about first. Um, we can talk about libido first. That's right. fine. Well, what kinds of reasons are women coming to you for help for when it comes to libido? Yeah. So I would say libido is one of the most complex issues, low libido to take care of because so many things play a role in libido. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything from chronic medical conditions to what your parents taught you about sex mm-hmm. um, to how you feel about your body and to certain medicines or depression, anxiety. There's so many things. Absolutely. So when I when I see women for low libido, I do a very extensive and thorough history because the last thing I want to do is be like, oh, you have low libido? Here, take this pill. That is mm-hmm. not not the right answer. Um, and I find that when, when women have low libido, it's generally not due to just one thing. There's a lot of contributing factors. Um, and so that's why I like to do a very thorough history and focus on all the contributing factors. And if somebody needs a medicine, then that's a possibility. They certainly don't have to. Um, But I want to make sure that they get the comprehensive evaluation and focus on the things that can be uh, adjusted. Absolutely. Honestly, I mean, that's part of my work too. You know, I'm a sex therapist Mm -hmm. too. And I mean, the reality is you can give somebody a pill, but that doesn't change if they hate their husband. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You still have to think of things like, look at things like relationships and if people are Mm -hmm. getting along or if, or yeah, to your point, like one of the things that shows up um, in my office a lot is people's just comfort with sex and whether they're a sexual person um, yeah. If you struggle to identify yourself as sexual, then it's really hard to like give yourself permission to feel desire. Yeah, <laughs> that can be so many point. hangups. <laughs> I like how you phrase that as like your identity as a sexual person. That's true, and I think we get a lot of that from what we were taught about sex as children and growing up. Um, but yeah, I like I like that. Well, it's been it's been a running theme in my practice is like how people identify and relate to sexuality. In fact, one mm-hmm. of my favorite stories was actually when I was working with an accountant and he said, I'm not sexual like that. I'm an accountant. And I imagined him. <laughs> no, I know it drove me nuts because I was like, wait, but are you like, do you have your tax calculator in the bedroom? And like, as you're going, you kind of like do math. <laughs> and he was so like, it totally threw that him off. That might work God. for some people. <laughs> I know. But like, there's just, to your point, there is just way more to this than a pill. So like, when you do that whole workup, then what are some of the things that you help people do from there? Mm -hmm. So um, I do, it's, there's a lot. So like, I will always look at their medicines. A lot of women are on SSRIs, which are things like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, and have no idea that it can be affecting their libido and ability to orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're depressed, I might uh, talk to them about seeing a therapist um, or a psychiatrist or exercise is really great for mood issues. Absolutely. Um, I see a lot of women with cancer, specifically breast cancer, who have terrible pain with intercourse. Mm -hmm. Well, if sex hurts, then why do it? 
that just makes total sense. And I do see a lot of times women come in and their chief complaint is low libido, but really when you get down to it, it's because sex is painful. So Mm -hmm. you don't um, desire something that causes pain. It's very uncomfortable. Totally normal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're worried about what's, what's wrong with them. And I, I understand that because our society, we don't, talk about sex enough that women feel comfortable talking about it. So they hold it in and feel like they're broken and they're not like there, there are things that happen as you age, you know, even without cancer, you can get vaginal dryness that causes painful sex. And, and one thing I notice is that that usually is a symptom that shows up a couple years after your period stop. So women don't know that that's related to the menopause, whereas they know that hot flashes are related to menopause because their periods are going haywire. They have hot flashes. We talk about hot flashes. Um, but then they think what's wrong with me or their partner says, why aren't you lubricated? Do you not love me anymore? You know, are you cheating? And no, it's just, it's normal. That's what happens. Um, but there are plenty of things that you can use safely to help restore vaginal elasticity and vaginal moisture. Um, so if that's part of the libido, then, you know, we'll concentrate on that. And then what I'll usually do is go through a list of things that I recommend that are not medicine. And then I'll go through the risks, benefits, side effects of the medicines, mm-hmm. and they can pick and choose what they, how they would like to proceed. I'm really curious, since you brought up sex and cancer and how cancer can impact mm-hmm. a woman's body. So yes. um, I have a lot of people who come to me about this, and I'm curious if you can explain kind of the science behind why cancer can impact um, someone's sex life. Um, well, for a variety of reasons, and one, it depends on the type of cancer. So some cancers impact a woman's sex life 20 times worse or 100 times worse than other ones. So specifically mm-hmm. breast cancer. And I see so many women with breast cancer in my practice because breast cancer, basically, you lose your breasts. Not always. You might have a lumpectomy, but you know, either, either your breasts you might have scarring. So, you know, breasts are a sex organ. If you have a mastectomy, they remove a breast or both breasts. And then you lose, a lot of times you'll have no nipple, there'll be no sensation. Mm -hmm. Um, And most surgeons don't mention that to women. And so they have no idea that there's going to be that loss of their, that sensation of, you know, like nipple sensation. And for a lot of women, that's a very important part of who they are sexually. Women who have breast cancer also um, can be at higher risk for ovarian cancer. And so many of them will have their uterus and their ovaries removed. And so I see a lot of feelings of what is left of me that's woman, right? Mm -hmm. They took my breasts, they took my ovaries, they took my uterus. And what I say to that is you still have a clitoris and that (laughs) is an incredibly important sex organ and you still have a vagina. Mm -hmm. So you can still have a fantastic you know, sex life and you don't have to say, oh, well, it's all over because I had cancer. You know, there's still plenty that you can do. The other cancers that I see this in are things like cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, colon, bladder, anything that affects the pelvis in general. If you have radiation to the pelvis, it it can scar the vagina. Um, And the worst thing I ever heard a patient tell me, and I just like, I, she had cervical cancer. And so they were doing radiation. She went in for her radiation treatment and the physician was a guy and he came in and said, Oh, by the way, well, this is how she heard it. So I'm hearing her side of the story, but it was appalling to me. He said, Oh, by the way, your vagina is going to close up. Here's a dilator. 
And that's what she heard. And I was like, my what? jaw, yeah, because it can, so you can, that can happen. And so I help women use dilators to maintain vaginal patency, but that's how she heard it. And who knows if that's exactly how he said it, but if that was, that's a horrible thing to just drop that ball and say, oh, by the way, your sex life is going to be ruined. So um, if people are listening and they have cervical cancer or vaginal cancer, any, or had pelvic radiation, that is not the case. You can use dilators. You can still use your vagina. Well, and I, I do, I do want to like point out too. Some of this is related to the cancer, but some of it's also related to the treatment. Correct? That like correct. It's some of the yes. cancer treatment that can be very drying to the va- the vagina, yes. and and that's uh-huh. part of why some women are having some of that pain. Um, yes. The radiation treatments really impact the whole body, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, things change. Tell me a little more. I don't want to be the explainer. You're the doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. So, well, it depends where you have the radiation. So, radiation now is, um, it's it's gotten much better over the years in pinpointing the area that needs to be pinpointed because, you know, you can, you have a lot of side effects. Like if you have pelvic irradiation, your bowels are in there. You can have all sorts of bowel problems. So Mm -hmm. definitely since I started doing this, they're much better at focusing the radiation on the parts that need it. Um, But yeah, radiation, it's like having a burn almost. And it makes you feel bad and your skin might be burned, especially in breast radiation, it looks burned. Um, And, you know, cancer just in general wears you out. You might be fatigued. um, You might be nauseated from treatment or something like that. But, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain a sex life. And the good news is that more and more people are living from when they have cancer. And so I have seen in the cancer community, which I think is fantastic, a move towards focusing on sexuality and quality of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really important. It's not only about let's get rid of the cancer and then you figure out the rest of your life. It's let's get rid of the cancer. And now we're going to help you have an excellent quality of life. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. Cause I, you know, what we were talking about earlier, how people label themselves and identify sexually. Mm-hmm. If you're in a, if you're in a context where people really aren't covering it, then people are left to do it on their own. And one of the most common things that female do is find a way to kind of, I call it imploding, but they take it personally. It's not a, mm-hmm. like one thing you said earlier is they think there's something wrong with me and then I must be broken in some way. And yes. that's how they kind of implode. And when you have a, a system or at least a context where people are encouraging quality of life and quality of sex, then suddenly you can believe, no, maybe I can be a sexual person. It's changed, yes. but it doesn't mean it, it can't be good. But right. I, you know, I was thinking of that like loss of identity. This is a grieving process that people go through that they're not aware of how to, like, how do you process, how, how do you process that, you know? And so that's the right. piece that's a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to like just can't, I know, I don't want to say just can't. I hate the word just because whenever I say that, it's like, well, let's just push cancer aside. It's not like that. (laughs) I know what you're trying to say. (laughs) I know. I I overthink everything. It's my style. But so in in addition to cancer, I mean, painful sex impacts a lot of people. So I'm curious, you know, what are the other types of painful sex that you work with and different ways they come from for your clients? Yeah. So I see a lot of women with endometriosis. Um, and that's another horrible condition. It takes on average a uh, visit with seven providers to actually make the right diagnosis. And endometriosis is where you can have like endometrial lining, which is the lining that you shed each month inside the uterus, 
can implant in the pelvis on ovaries, on bowel, on bladder, and it causes inflammation and terrible pain. Typically, people will present with really bad menstrual cramps that, you know, they miss school or work or they're so nauseated they're puking because the pain is so bad. Mm-hmm. And endo is is awful. And it many times, not always, but many times it's part of a whole constellation of pain issues. So women with endometriosis are more likely to have bladder pain. They're more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, They're more likely to have um, things like migraines and and other pain syndromes and, and, and also vulvodynia, which is pain of the vulva without like a lesion. There's no blister. There's no lesions, just the vulva hurts. And they're more likely to have pelvic floor muscle spasm as a response to pain which leads to more pain. And so I think it's it's important that for somebody who has pelvic pain to really see a pelvic pain specialist mm-hmm. um, because it's so much more complicated than, oh, here, take a birth control pill. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many sort of confounding factors that you want to make sure that all of those issues are addressed because if you only focus on the endometriosis and not on the bladder pain, then the pain won't get completely better. Mm -hmm. So I do see a lot of endo and um, I work really closely with the pelvic pain center at SLU, St. Louis University, um, where they have excellent endometriosis surgeons and um, urogynecologists um, who are pelvic pain specialists. And then I handle the painful sex part. So it's it's sort of a multidisciplinary team Mm -hmm. because pain is so complicated. And so I I think we we have a good setup here in St. Louis. No, I, I agree. And actually, you know, so as a sex therapist, um, I, I started out learning about painful sex as a psychological disorder, which yeah. is interesting because it was treated sort of like that in the beginning when it people was. had painful sex. They were like, this is in your head, so you need to go see yes. a therapist. And the hard thing about pain, just for any listeners, is that it's kind of a mix. Like, so it pain is real. When you feel pain, it's real. It is a real experience in your body. So it's physiological, but it does create psychological experiences as well. Because of course, you know, the anticipation of pain, the worry about pain, how is this going to impact in my sex? And so what I found in my practice is I really need to collaborate with other professionals like you, actually, Dr. Becky, where you're like, mm-hmm. okay, you need to be with a medical professional. You need to have a physical therapist. We need to see the bigger, broader issue because as you said seven doctors i'm curious now i have a real question about that why does Mm -hmm. it take seven doctors typically to diagnose um well i think that um you know because it a woman might come in with menstrual cramps so we give her a birth control pill but she still has pain and the thing is, is that you know maybe if she has endo eventually someone will do a laparoscopy that's the only way you can diagnose endometriosis is with a surgery called laparoscopy where you look inside the abdomen for the little endometriotic implants the little lesions Um, and so you know somebody comes in they have pelvic pain and their provider will, you know, screen for STDs, it's negative, do a pelvic ultrasound, it's negative. And so we're so programmed to say, oh, look, everything's normal. So you're fine. So it must be- At least be based on bed. those tests, right? But you on didn't do the other tests. test you needed. <laughs> right. You didn't do the laparoscopy. And, and you know, I think there's something to be said about that. You can't just take everybody who has menstrual cramps and go do surgery because surgery has risks to it. That makes sense. Um, but I, I think- that you have to sort of be on the lookout lookout as the provider when someone has really bad menstrual cramps, if they're not getting better, to think endo and to either 
go to do a laparoscopy or just refer them to somebody who's a specialist or somebody in it. Because if you go, I, I, I'm very, I'm sort of biased in that I really believe if you think you have endo or if I think a patient has endo, they should see um, an endometriosis surgeon um, because those surgeons, they're MIG surgeons, which is minimally invasive gynecology. So they're, they have extra training to get every last bit of endometriosis out. And um, so, you know, so we're lucky here. We have two of them at SLU. Um, and, um, you know, but, but I think it just takes time because there are really no physical findings. Women come in and just say, I have pelvic pain. And so they, with endo, they might start with menstrual cramps really bad. And then over time it gets bad that they have pain all the time mm-hmm. and all the imaging you do shows nothing. So then they get this diagnosis. Oh, it's in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to say also about like what you do is that if you have chronic pain and you didn't have anxiety and depression before, now you're going to have anxiety. Absolutely. And <laughs> like it goes together. <laughs> they do. Like, and, and the thing with anxiety and depression is they turn up the amplifier on pain. They mm-hmm. make your brain hear it so much worse. So that's part of the treatment of pelvic pain is to get the anxiety and depression under control so you can lower the volume on how much, how loudly your brain hears pain. Well, now you just triggered kind of something interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Just, I'm, you know, I'm recently working with different kinds of clients who are struggling with, um, I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but it's where after pregnancy, their belly struggles to kind of heal and mm-hmm. come together. And so they feel kind of loose and it feels almost foreign, for example. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to the cancer stuff where like, you know, if somebody loses their breast or if they lose parts of their femininity, it's like, you, you almost feel like there's this foreign thing going on in your body. And then there's the uh-huh. anxiety and depression around it because it's like, wait, this isn't who I am. I don't know how to connect to this. And to your point, also, it amplifies the way you feel. So like a big part of my job has been with clients who come with any of these different distressing factors is how do I help them shift that distress so that they're yeah. they're dealing with pain when it's happening. Like actually a lot of it's mindfulness and teaching people yes. to kind of like re-experience their... Um, well, their sexuality in new ways, like for pain during intercourse, one of the things I need to do is help people reassociate positive feelings with sex because they've had so many negative feelings. The way I kind of describe it is it's almost like you've traumatized the vagina to the point that it's yeah. like, fuck off. I'm not having sex with you anymore. <laughs> Sorry, we're done. Drop exactly. The mic. And so <laughs> we're it's, out. exactly. We drop the mic. We're out of this because like, why would you do that? Why? Yeah. And so, yeah, it becomes this really complex process of no, I'm physio logically struggling. I don't know what it is if it takes you seven doctors to figure it out. And then there's all this anxiety and depression around, will this ever be solved? Maybe you finally get the diagnosis, but oftentimes by the time people are coming to us, there's a lot of shit (laughs) to deal with. Yes. No, that's so true. (laughs) And just because you get the diagnosis doesn't mean that you're not going to have pain anymore. There's still, you know, a road to travel to getting better. And some people with chronic pain will always have some element of pain. And the goal really is to get it to a really low level or a livable level. Like management. But, but I do find it interesting, like your side of how you kind of need to redirect and make sex a positive thing as opposed to an associating it with such negativity. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you some more stuff because you also deal with PGAD and I don't yes. think I've done an episode talking about that. So yes. can you explain PGAD? 
And Absolutely. let's go from there. <laughs> yeah. So PGAD is persistent genital arousal disorder, although I think they're working on changing the name. So, you know, okay. we'll, we'll hear about that at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a condition where, and it happens in men and women. I only see women in my practice. I think it happens more in women than in men where they have this constant feeling of arousal, like they need to orgasm, like they need to masturbate to get it to go away. And if they masturbate, it goes away temporarily and comes right back. Mm -hmm. And it's awful. And it's kind of on the spectrum when it gets really bad, it can be very painful. So it can be considered in some people sort of a pain syndrome as well. Um, But if you think about this, how terrifying and, and I, and, and a lot of practitioners have never heard of it. When I was in medical school and residency, I never learned about it. It was really only recognized, I believe, in the early 2000s. And so, and patients are mortified to bring this to a doctor. You know, they think that someone's going to tell them they're, you know, you know, I don't know, hypersexual and that it's, you know, a, a problem in their brain and it's bad. And, you know, they, and why wouldn't they feel that way? If I didn't know what this was, I would be mortified to bring it. I wouldn't even know who to tell. And um, so, but over the years, it's become more like more practitioners are learning about it. There's really not one overarching treatment. And we don't know exactly what causes it, but we do have some theories. Um, but it can be anywhere in from the brain to the spinal cord to, you know, the clitoris itself that can cause um, that feeling. So um, there's not really a great okay, this is what you should do. There's not an algorithm. This is how you should treat patients. Although they're all like the experts are also working on publishing an algorithm. Um, Maybe it's out now, but I don't know. I don't think so. Um, And so it's a lot of trial and error, but it's, it's just the, the most horrible, horrible condition. And I feel so bad for my patients who have it. So is it, um, like what I always think about it is like if this feeling of you need to pee, but you're never able to quite satiate that feeling, you know, where it's like it's just constantly yeah. this almost it's almost there, but it's not quite. So it's not like a fun experience. And I think that's the right. challenge when people describe it to others that aren't aware of it. So actually, mm-hmm. one time I was in like a room full of uh, medical professionals and we were allowed to send quiet um questions up to the doctors. And so I put in a question about PGAD and it's something along the lines of though, um, what is the, uh, you know, like I have this persistent arousal and it just doesn't go away. And the doctor up there was like, well, that's a great condition. Good for you. Oh, you know, and it was, no. it, it's well, cause I was curious. I was like, do they know yeah. about it? And could they help with somebody who had this? And no, like that's actually a common response people get of like, yes. well, Hey, good for your partner or It's just like, no, you don't understand. This is bad for me. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah, no, that is definitely like for people who don't know, that's that's the response you get from a practitioner. So, you know, hopefully as we learn more about it and more is published about it, um, that it'll, you know, and more people are are doing sexual medicine and, and treating sexual issues, the more people know about it. There's also, there's a really excellent support group for PGAD. It's huge. There are hundreds of people all over the world. It's a Facebook support group. It's secret, closed, and private because, as you can imagine, it might get some creepers. Yes. Um, so, you know, you you have to um, – there's, a, like, for my patients, I can get in touch with the person who – and she's the administrator, and then she'll add them um, – but um, and which I'm sure she would for your patients too. Um, but it's such a good 
Facebook support group because, as you can imagine, these people feel really alone. And the support group is really good at getting on there and being like, hey, I tried this and this worked or I tried this or you should go see, you know, such and such. So I think that I have, um, you know, quite a population of patients with PGAD in my practice because the support group knows where I am and that I take care of patients with PGAD. And so they come from all over. What are some of the things people... I mean, what are the things that you use to treat people with PGAD? What are some of the options? I know you said it's trial and error, but I'm just curious what the range yes. of options are. Yeah. So um, first, my goal is to try and figure out why they have it. So I will definitely examine the clitoris. Are there adhesions? You know, is there something um, on the clitoris that is that is irritating it or constant irritation that's, you know, firing up the nerves so they constantly feel aroused? Um, I'll check for pelvic floor muscle spasm. Um, I will, so I will also usually get an MRI, um, of the back because Tarloff cysts, which are little outpouchings of cerebrospinal fluid, um, and other spinal cord problems like, um, uh, what do you call it? herniated discs and annular tears can, as the nerves leave the spinal cord can irritate the, the nerves and cause them to be continually firing. So I always battle with insurance companies because they'll always deny it first, which drives me crazy. Um, but I'll do the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so if let's say I, I do the whole exam and I don't find anything, um, a lot of times I will start with um, Shantix. Um, which is not FDA approved for PGAD, but I have definitely seen it work. And the way that it works um, makes sense with PGAD. Um, sometimes I'll do a pudendal block. Like if I decide that they have PGAD because of a pudendal issue, like here's an example. Pudendal nerve is the nerve that supplies the clitoris and supplies the vulva um, and all that. So like an example of a patient I saw once um, was sitting on the back of the motorcycle of a partner and the motorcycle took off and she fell off the back and landed right on her sacrum. And after that, she had PGAD. And so that's most likely due to some, you know, pudendal bruising or something like that. So for some people, I'll do a pudendal block. Um, Another reason that people seem to get PGAD is when you are changing their antidepressants. And we don't know exactly how or why, but we know that PGAD has something to do with dopamine in the brain. Um, I can't tell you all the exact specifics, but um, but when you switched people's antidepressants, sometimes they'll develop PGAD. And so that's a tough one because then, you know, now you're going to add like Shantix or, you know, you can also do Ambien. These are both totally off-label uses. I usually go with the Shantix, um, but, you know, you can try those. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And so it's hard It's hard because it's still being studied so much and it's kind of relatively new that people are actually accepting that this is a diagnosis that needs to be treated. But it sounds like it's some yes. version of a nerve condition or an um, injury or kind of mm-hmm. somewhere. And just to throw a little background in there, you know, I actually watched this really cool TED Talk which talked about how orgasms actually come from the brain and the spine. The easiest way mm-hmm. to get through them is through your genitals, but that's actually where they're located. And so when you have, when you talk about those spine disc issues. I mean, naturally that makes sense because it's about how that nerve is wiring or misfiring essentially. And and that's why it can be so complex in terms of how to treat because also the nerves, we can't easily just say, oh, it's this nerve. This is the nerve, you know, or that one, right? Um, It can be a blend. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that TED talk. 
I will have to. Oh, it's it's it was ten interesting things you don't know about orgasm, and they talked oh. about essentially that like they could give people orga- dead people orgasms by touching a certain part of the spine. And I was thinking to myself, who's giving dead people orgasms? But okay, <laughs> I mean, whatever you guys want to do. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Life choices. Yeah. That's all I have yeah, to say. Exactly. Life choices. <laughs> well, so um, wow, this has been so interesting. So I, I kind of wanted to go into like maybe just a little bit about you, Doctor Becky. What got sure. you into this field? Yeah. So, um, uh, gosh, so I knew that I wanted to do women's health, um, even before I went to medical school, mm-hmm. but I went to med school with an open mind. And in the end I chose OBGYN and, um, for six years I practiced just regular routine OBGYN in Jefferson city, Missouri, at a community hospital. And when I first got there, I can remember I had a couple patients ask me about low libido. And I had learned nothing about low libido during residency, Hmm. and I didn't have an answer, and that really bothered me. And um, way back then, this was, you know, not everything was on the internet. I got a card in the mail about a conference um, about women's sexuality, and I went to that conference, and I learned so much. Um, And I came back, and I actually had an answer. I had some things that, you know, I could offer to my patients with low libido. Ultimately, I went up to the University of Missouri in Columbia, and um, I can remember I was at a faculty meeting, and the urogynecologist um, was talking about how he really didn't have time in his practice to talk to women about sexual function. He wanted to operate, and so I raised my hand, and I said, I'd be happy to see women who have sexual issues, and then after that, everyone referred me and I thought, oh my gosh, I got to learn a whole bunch more than what I just (laughs) learned at the one conference I did six years ago. So um, I found ISWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. It's a great resource. It's a great organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went to a course and I've been going to their conferences and I did um, a preceptorship with a physician in California where I shadowed him in his clinic to learn, you know, how to do this and what he sees. Um, and then I did the sexual counseling training. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm kind of a lifelong learner. I, I want to learn more. So um, I've just continued to practice and then, you know, stay on top of things and go to conferences. And I just love to learn. So, and I enjoy doing this because I feel it like it's so important. It is so important. And there's, and it's so, when you have a, a sexual issue, it is, it's a, it's a multiplier effect. It spills out into your relationship and your happiness and your family. And, you know, it's, it's very important to address and I'm comfortable talking about sex. It doesn't bother me in the least bit. And I know some people aren't. Um, and so I want to make sure that I can help people in that way and that women know that, you know, they deserve a good sex life and there's, there's nothing wrong with them. We can work on this. There are changes that happen, but sex is important for women. And I think a lot of times we overlook that, you know, we say, oh, for men, any, any man who gets started on an antidepressant, they're for sure going to be told about erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But I find that women who get started on antidepressants, they, they have no idea that affected their ability to orgasm because nobody told them. That's really interesting. So, you know, yeah. it makes me think of the broader global influence around females and sexuality, which I know mm-hmm. is like a big, broad topic. But, you know, it, it speaks a lot to how we even teach people, teach women and men about sex and that it's okay to be sexual. That's why I talk mm-hmm. a lot about permission and giving people identities, because I think there's a lot 
there's a lot to sexuality that is just giving yourself permission to be a sexual person. Like if that isn't allowed at the very beginning or somewhere in your life where you say, you know what, I'm going to be sexual and it's okay, then people really struggle. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's funny you mentioned like being you had to do extra training. I found that in my practice too, that like therapists don't, unless you become a sex therapist, you'll kind of lightly touch on it, but it's like, oh, it's sex. Let's refer you somewhere else. There exactly. is just a conservatism around yes. sex and sexuality in, in the medical and the mental health field that is, uh, I don't know, it's just odd. But I mean, not yeah. that odd given our cultural context. So like It's like, ah, sex. We look at it as kind of either pornographic or don't talk about it at all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense, but that's the way it is. Well, and when you have those two dynamics, I think what happens is people can't find a middle ground identity, right? So like Mm -hmm. I either get to be a whore or I'm a prude, right? It's like we got to find somewhere in the middle where it's like, no, you know what? I can be an educated woman and like sex. I can be an educated man and be a sexual person. I can be an accountant who likes sex. That's right. Well, so um, what are some of the, I was just like wondering if you have any, uh, you know, weird stories or unique stories or like, what's a common thing that a woman will say to you when you first meet her? Um, So I have noticed it kind of depends on the woman. So some women are completely open talking about their sexuality, completely open. And other women can't say the word vagina out loud. So, um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I feel like a lot of what I do is create a space that's non-judgmental. I'll say the word vagina, it's just a body part. And, (laughs) you know, like I, I do try very hard to just set up, make it easy for those people who have trouble saying the word out loud. Mm Um, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. I I was going to say the one thing that I've noticed in the sexual counseling realm, and you may see this way more than I see this, but, you know, I have noticed that something that stuck out to me was that women stay in relationships for a zillion reasons, even when it's not a great relationship, you know? Um, And women have sex for a zillion reasons. It's not always because they have desire. They might you know, want something or, you know, there's a a zillion reasons women have sex. So I guess those are two things that I never had thought about in the past. Um, But there they are. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting ones for me are when it's for a chore. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to have sex with you to get those curtains put up, man. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's the barter system, you know. There's bartering. <laughs> there is sexual bartering going on. Yeah. And there's kind yeah. of these expectations around sex that are making people not enjoy it. Like that, yes. you know, this sort of sense of like, I need to do this or I have to do this is, is just right. the biggest desire killer. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So like duty sex. Uh-huh. Right. Where they just feel like they have to do it. So I see that a lot in my patients with low libido. So they feel like they have to have sex. They don't really want to. They do. It's not great sex. They don't get their needs taken care of. So it's not a great, um, you know, not a great time. So the next time when sex is presented to them, they think back and be like, well, that wasn't so good. So I don't really want to do it, but they do it again. Mm -hmm. And it's still bad. And it's just this like vicious cycle and downward spiral. And so, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, getting your own needs met. I do think there are some women who feel like sex is all about the man. And once he's done, it's over. And, you know, that's not the case, you know, you, in order to want to have sex, you have to have your needs met. So sex is selfish. 
mm-hmm. and self-love. Absolutely. No, I've totally yeah. seen that in my practice too, where people just, I don't know, like, I wish there was another medium that really showed people what good sex looks like other than porn, mm-hmm. because I know that that's like, it's the hidden thing under there that people see. And I'm not opposed mm-hmm. to porn. I don't give it, I don't really care right. about it. Right. It's just right. like, okay, it's what people use to get off alone. But what I'm, right. what I do struggle with it is that, is that there people don't have this other visual of what good sex could be, what it could look right. like. There aren't a lot of great examples. Like even in shows where it's kind of romantic, people are having very quick sex or they fade off into the background depending on the rating system. And you're just <laughs> not seeing what real sex looks like. And so I find yeah. so much of my time in session is teaching people, well, here's how some people do it and here's how other people do it. And actually here's here's how it can be very casual for some people and here's how it can be planned for others. And that, that, that's that is not that odd to do those things, but because there's all these preconceived notions about what is right. good sex or what it should be. It's got to be spontaneous and magical all the time. Then they right. feel like they're doing it wrong and then they just keep they just keep that downward spiral. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that's really interesting. And I, I, I feel like I see a lot of women come in and think they always have to orgasm vaginally when mm-hmm. we know that many women can't. And they feel like it should always happen when the man happens because that's what happens in the movies. So, exactly. So they do it all the time like that. Mm-hmm. And that's really not how it works the majority of the time. So actually, I wanted to ask you, do you have any good resources for your clients that um, you know, so they can see what real sex looks like. Are there handouts or do you just talk about it? Because I would love to have something like that to offer my patients. Absolutely. Well, so I'll tell you a few things. I actually have been putting together a YouTube channel now for a few years where I just put out tidbits of like, here's an example of how people deal with a gray zone where you're kind of trying to figure out, you know, I'm kind of interested. I'm kind of not interested. I'm not there yet, but here's what we could do to get there. You know, like that's a Mm -hmm. gray zone where it's like sex is kind of on the table, but nobody's feeling like they're at a 10, right? So like I put out little videos like that where I'm teaching people just little skills and strategies. But even Mm -hmm. beyond that, there is this old show I used to watch, and this is part of what got me into my field, is uh, Real mm-hmm. Sex from HBO when I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I was like 12 and 13 watching this yeah. show for adults well, and that's like when HBO. That's well, it's yeah. what I learned, right? But like there was, yeah. it was t- real people talking about what they do sexually, what turns them on, what's interesting. And some of them were weird. Some of them were sexy. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that was a thing. But Mm -hmm. I felt like that was a cool representation. They'd interview people on the street. So there's that. I feel like actually the Playboy channel has been doing better because now that porn is free and easily accessible, Mm -hmm. um, Playboy has had to shift its approach. And so actually yeah. Playboy is making more couples related um like sexual programming uh that couples oh. are finding fun and interesting because they had to find a way to do something special. It's not special to be naked anymore. You know? Right. Right. And when so it's so easy to see that. Exactly, exactly. And then also I just get people on a sexual journey. Like there's TED Talks about sex. There's mm-hmm. information like the guide to getting it on, which is a great it's yes. I call it the sex bible, but I you know, like yep. it's just chapters to get people learning. And really a big part of what I do is immerse people in sexual education. So they're starting uh-huh. to learn. But then of course, absolutely in my practice, I'm teaching people, I'm trying to coordinate it so that it works for their life. And I'm also trying to teach them they can have their own personality and even flirtation styles. Like I taught these one couple that they overthink everything. I was like, well, you know, you can overuse overthinking as a flirtation style, right? And they were like, no, you can. And, you know, and so 
and I don't care how it happens. I just want people to find their version of good sexuality. Like that's mm-hmm. that's my important goal. So yeah. <laughs> thank you for asking. Well, yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm curious, um, because we're kind of towards the end of the episode, what are just some final pieces of information you want people to know about you, what you Mm -hmm. do, you know, all of that good stuff? Yeah. So um, I, well, in case anybody needs me, I'm at St. Luke's in Chesterfield. Um, I'm at Evora Women's Health. Um, we see all comers, sexual problems, menopause. Um, those are our two, um, main specialties. Um, so you can find me at evorawomen.com. Um, our, uh, phone number is 314-934-0551. Um, and we also do a free 15 minute visit if someone just wants to meet me, cause this is a very embarrassing topic. So if they just want to meet me for 15 minutes and see if, um, we're the right fit, they can do that. Um, and they can schedule that by calling or going to our website. Um, and I do also, I have Facebook and Instagram, which are, is at Evora Women's Health or at Becky K. Lynn MD. Um, and I love social media too. And I feel like it's a great tool to educate people. Like we're talking about, you don't get enough education about what's normal. Um, so I do a lot of that on social media and I also have a YouTube channel. So, so yeah, that's how they can find me. Excellent. And we'll have all the links in the blog. So uh, thank you again, Dr. Becky Lynn, for joining me. And you all have been listening to the About Sex podcast. That's www.aboutsexpodcast.com. And you can also find me as a therapist at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Thank you all for joining me and stay kinky, St. Louis.